Space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number 10. Or, if you've listened before, then welcome back. We seem to be transitioning out of the all-rain, all-the-time weather here in Portland to something more bearable, uh, which is nice. I don't know about you, but I enjoy playing war games more in a sunny room than in one with rain coming down outside. But maybe that's just because the weather improves my mood in general. Anyway... I did get the chance to play some games recently and hope to play more before the end of May as my schedule is a bit lighter now. Um, And that's another reason I've been able to sit down and record Wild Weasel, by the way. Um, Speaking of Wild Weasel, there have been 10 episodes now over a time period of about 14 months. Uh, Although I guess you can't really count the first episode in that timing. Um, That's not as fast as I had hoped to get them out, but uh, I won't change the monthly goal and we'll see if I can keep missing it. We have a great guest this time, so um, let's just cut to the chase, shall we? But first, the news. Back in Wild Weasel number four, I mentioned an Italian company called Vento Nuovo Games. Uh, Back then, they were in the middle of a Kickstarter for a game called Moscow 41, which was a block game about Operation Typhoon. Uh, Now they've finished another Kickstarter, uh, also about a battle in front of Moscow, but this one's in 1812. Uh, That's right, they're doing a block Borodino game called Bloody Monday. Uh, It's interesting that we know that September 7th, 1812 was a Monday. I'm not sure how the Napoleonic soldiers felt about that. Imagine getting up for work on Monday knowing your job was a battle for the future of Europe. Anyway... It's a block game. Uh, What else do we know? It costs 65 euros at the Kickstarter price, Um, by the way, which you can still get by doing what's called a late pledge, um, which basically just means going to Venton Wolf's store, uh, which is honoring the Kickstarter tiers, even though the campaign ended on April 18th. Um, that's at ventonwovo.com, and uh, I'll have a link to the bottom at, uh, to this at the bottom of the podcast page because, um, it's kind of a long URL. Uh, If you heard me talking about Enemy Action Ardennes in a previous podcast, you'll know that the next bit of news has me excited, which is that designer John Butterfield has announced Enemy Action Kharkov as the next game in this series. Um, Butterfield says, and I quote, The game system heads to Kharkov on the East Front for the Soviet Gallup and Star Offensives and the German backhand blow counterattack in February, March 1943, end quote. Uh, he says he is currently finishing the design of the two-player game and then is going to turn to the Soviet and German solo versions. Uh, he says he's going to be playtesting the two-player version at Consum World Expo and WBC this summer, so there's an extra reason to attend. 
Um, that's from Compass Games. Um, there's another game that popped up on their page, to my surprise, and that's Ted Racer's Fall of the Third Reich. Um, if you don't know Ted, he designed Paths of Glory, The Dark Valley, and many other great games. Um, this one is about World War II from 1943 until the end, uh, done at the Army Corps level with two months per turn and 30 miles per hex. Um, you can even see a map on the website. So I think this one may be a game that I buy without any reviews. Um, I It sounds kind of vanilla, but I'm sure all the, um, all the special is in the way that uh, Ted implements it. So I'm, I'm probably going to just get that and see what happens. Now, um, White Dog Games seems to have snuck out a game I wasn't expecting or really had heard anything about called N colon Napoleonic Wars. I guess the N stands for Napoleon. Um, this is designed by Arben Madison, uh, designer of Don't Tread on Me, which um, that's the American Revolution. This game covers the Napoleonic Wars on a very large scale, and it's just like Don't Tread on Me. It's a solitary game. Um, it says the main scenario just on the page says it's 10 turns, and the playing time is listed at like two and a half hours for an experienced player, so fine. Five hours when you first play it. It's my guess. Um, this is also a part of uh, supposed to be part of the designer's so-called British Wars trilogy of solitaire games. Um, the third one is going to be called Mrs. Thatcher's War. It's about the Falklands. Um, but the odd thing is that Mrs. Thatcher's War was announced, I think, almost a year ago. But I hadn't seen anything about a Napoleonic game. So, um, And that's shipping now for $45, including shipping. Um, go to whitedoggames.com. Incidentally, they have a Pickett's Charge game in the works, um, although I don't know how anyone can improve on Herman Lutman's uh, In Magnificent Style. Now, Legion War Games uh, is about to ship two games from their pre-order roster. Uh, Target for Today, uh, which is another solitaire game about B-17s, uh, that ships on May 29th. Then there's Demyansk Pocket, which is a game about an encirclement in early 1942 during the failed Soviet winter counteroffensive. Uh, that should ship in June. Uh, you can still get the pre-order price on those, I think, but you need to do it soon. Go to legionwargames.com. Now, Hollandspiele has a new item up on their website called Horse and Musket, uh, designed by Sean Chick and subtitled Dawn of an Era. And looking at the description and components, it seems like it's a kind of a construction set game uh, with modular terrain in the form of tiles and says that it's a, quote, Simple tactical game system covering musket warfare from Vienna 1683 to Appomattox in 19... Oh, sorry, in 1865. Um, while I'm excited to see a game that includes King Jan Sobieski, I have some reservations about a game that tries to cover that particular period of history with only one system. Um, the first game only goes through 1719, though, so maybe they mean there will be significant re revisions and changes for Napoleonic and American Civil War eras. Um, in fact, I mean, that has to be the case. I can't imagine it being otherwise. Um, but this game will get you from uh, 1683 to 1719 for $85 from Holland Now, GMT Games uh, has charged pre-orders for Time of Crisis, which is a game um, about the uh, Roman Empire in the 3rd century B.C., uh, it's a card game. It's designed by Ray Farrell and Brad Johnson, so I'm expecting to see that out soon. Um, there haven't been any additions to the P500 list other than some reprints, um, but it looks like Road to, uh, sorry, Roads to Leningrad got a reprieve. It was on the last chance list previously and got 26 additional orders, so uh, they've agreed to keep it on the list for another three months. Unfortunately, um, 
some other ones that were on the last chance list were the Dark Valley and the Kaiser's Pirates, and neither one of those got enough to keep them there, so they have been deleted from the reprint list. Um, I don't understand the lack of love for the Dark Valley. Uh, it's one of the best Eastern Front games I've played. Anyway, uh, so if you want to play that, you're going to either have to um, get it on the secondary market or own one already. Um, <clears throat> one thing I found interesting in GMT's uh, last email update was their listing of all-time best-selling games. So number one is Twilight Struggle, uh, which is no surprise, uh, especially with the support it got from the digital version. But the next two are Battle Line and Dominant Species. Um, I would never have imagined either one of those to be that high. Uh, number four is Command and Colors Ancients. Okay, fine. Number five is Paths of Glory. Yep. Number six is Labyrinth. And number seventh is Combat Commander Europe. Hey. Um, but number eight is Thunder Alley, uh, which only came out in 2014 and is already just below the most popular war games. Um, I guess it shows you how much bigger the Euro game hobby is than the war game hobby. Um, and I guess, I'm sure the NASCAR theme didn't hurt. And uh, GMT would be crazy not to do more Euro-style games, which is, I'm sure, why they published Conquest of Paradise. Um, the list rounds out with Command and Colors Napoleonics at number nine, uh, by the way, which I think is a terrible uh, system for Napoleonics, but whatever, and Sekigahara at number 10. Uh, Sekigahara is another weird one since it was out of print for four years, uh, so I guess there was a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, Wilderness Wars number 11, and Here I Stand, strangely, is number 12. Um, that's another one that was out of print for a while, and I guess it shows how big Martin Luther is at the box office. Uh, by the way, you know what number 14 is? Ivanhoe. Uh, I didn't even know there was an Ivanhoe game, but uh, then I look it up, and it's a Reiner Knizia design from uh, 2000, so I suspect that's the explanation for its success. And by the way, the GMT Weekend at the Warehouse is October 5th through 8th this year. Um, I'd love to go, but that runs right up against a professional conference I'll be at uh, during the following week in Hawaii. So, um, I don't know, maybe I can sneak in for a day. We'll see. Um, there's a lot going on at MMP these days. Unfortunately, you can't find that e out easily from their website. Uh, I think they have one of the worst news sections I've ever come across for a company that publishes as much as they do. Um, anyway, Operation Mercury, uh, the grand tactical system game about the invasion of Crete, is supposedly shipping shortly, or even now. Um, they also have uh, two new games added to their pre-order list. Uh, the first one is Smolensk, Barbarossa Derailed. Uh, which takes the name of the book by David Glantz about the drive on Smolensk and turns it into an OCS game about the drive on Smolensk. Um, that's $63 as a pre-order and $84 at retail if you miss the pre-order period. The second is Kharkov, another Kharkov game coming out, a variable combat series game about the unsuccessful Soviet offensive and the German counterattack in Spring 42. The description explicitly says that it's based on David Glantz's Kharkov 1942, Anatomy of a Military Disaster. So you can get that book and start reading if you want to get ready. That one's going to be $65 pre-order and $86.50 at retail. And by the way, MMP also has a supplemental map bundle, uh, which includes 40 maps uh, for Advanced Squad Leader. Those are previously existing maps. Uh, they start at number 53. Uh, as the previous ones were included in Supplemental Map Bundle number 1. Um, those 40 maps will cost you $160 or $4 per map. And uh, they're the new style maps, by the way, with the cardstock, not the good old Avalon Hill heavy-mounted ones. But there you go. Now, Revolution Games has a new game scheduled for June called Patton's Vanguard, uh, which is about the Battle of Arakur. 
this looks like it uses their area movement system, uh, the storm over style thing, uh, as it's uh, designed by Michael Ranella, who's done uh, multiple ones of those. Um, a game they're shipping now and does not use area movement is called Red Typhoon and depicts the Soviet 1942 winter offensive. This is a game that was originally published in Command Magazine, by the way. It's basically a redesign, and it's $36 in Ziploc. Patton's Vanguard doesn't have any price information yet, but you can check out both of these at revolutiongames.us. Now, High Flying Dice Games, uh, that's Paul Rohrbaugh's company with a lot of um, kind of do-it-yourself stuff, has some new ones, including Breakout to Paris about the World War I German offensive in May-June 1918. This is a Perry Moore design, but I don't think it's a redesign. I think this actually is an original game. At least that's what I can tell from my research. It's $21 plus shipping. Uh, it'll cost you $26 plus shipping if you want the counters mounted for you. Otherwise, you'll get uh, the counters unmounted and you mount them yourself. You can find that at hfdgames.com. Mark H. Walker's Flying Pig Games has a Kickstarter in progress right now for a game called Armageddon War, colon, Armored Combat in the End War. This is a platoon-level combat game in the Mideast in the near future when everything's gone to hell. It has the U.S., Israel, the Soviets, uh, and an already planned expansion called Burning Sands, which adds the Jordanians and Hezbollah. This game costs $75, and that Kickstarter runs until June 1st. Uh, see the link on the podcast page as the URL is just too long to spell out. I gotta say, I do love the cover art. And that's the news. So today on Wild Weasel, we have Jack Green, who really, as far as I'm concerned, needs no introduction, but uh, has design credits such as Bismarck and Iron Bottom Sound and uh, Norway 1940, which um, we're going to talk about today. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Jack, Norway 1940, um, you are telling me, is coming out um, as a revised edition. Uh, this is a game that that was published in, um, what is it, 1981? Tell me about how this how this came about. Okay, the uh, the game was the second game that Quarter Deck Games came out with. First it one was, being Iron Bottom Sound, right? Iron Bottom Sound, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even though Destroyer Captain was actually designed before, but didn't get published until a couple years later mm -hmm. than 81. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and Norway was kind of a side project that I did with uh, uh, different uh, concepts, uh, not like Iron Bottom Sound, Royal Navy, or Destroyer Captain, or Bismarck for that matter at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Japanese uh, Japanese Command Magazine approached me uh, about a month ago, okay, and basically said uh, if you can get uh, a revised version of Norway 1942 us by um, the end of April, it'll be published in August of this year. Oh, which I always like to say uh, GMT. Please take note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the turnaround is. And uh, a couple other game companies as well. And then um, what I do is I'm, I revived my old game company of Quarter Deck Games. It's now Quarter Deck International. Mm -hmm. And I work with uh, Revolution Games out of Sacramento mm -hmm. for distribution. And I'm bringing in 300 copies of the game counters and the maps from Japan, which helps them on their print run. Because they only do about 1,000 copies of Japanese Command magazine for the uh, Japanese slash Asian market. Oh, okay. 
So it's it's a small it's a small print run. I mean, this is really a boutique hobby at this point. Yeah. Uh, well, so anyway, I'm going to bring in the the maps and the um, uh, counters. Of course, since there's no game box like Iron Bottom Sound Three, uh, it is going to be a lot less expensive. And I'm going to put uh, English charts. I've already priced them, and English language rules. The counters and the um, maps will be in English, with uh, wonderful Japanese graphics, and. Um, <clears throat> I'll ziplock them and um, sell them through Revolution Games and uh, Quarter Deck International game sites. Interesting. So, so Quarter Deck International is uh, that you? How did that you come up with um, this arrangement? Because uh, you republished uh, Iron Bottom Sound recently, right? Yes, exactly. And uh, we've actually brought in approximately three hundred copies of that, and have essentially sold out. I mm -hmm. mean, I don't know, twenty-four copies left, and they yep. have maybe maybe 50 or so in, in Japan, so I may be able to bring in a few more, but uh, we're basically, you know, at the end of the run on that. Um, it was just one of those things. I, I met uh, Roger Miller, who's one of the two partners at Revolution Games at uh, the Consum World Tempe Convention, which, by the way, I suggest uh, you think about attending. That's uh, much smaller than the WBC, much, much smaller. I mean, the WBC back east, they get uh, Don Greenwood's operation. They get, you know, 2,000 plus. We get maybe 230, 250. But what's interesting about Tempe is that a lot of the um, game company heads go to that convention. Okay. So you're, you're usually playing, just you walk around and get in a game or something, you're usually playing with a designer a developer, a couple of uh, guys who've been uh, playtesters on uh, previous games. I mean, it's, it's just not unusual at all to uh, be talking to people who really help uh, shape the hobby for bad or for or good. You're going to get sharked, though. Yeah. They're going to crush you in those games. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Oh, no, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just always interesting to get to talk to these people, I think. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the case of uh, a quarter deck in my relationship with Revolution, Roger and I got together on a Saturday, played his game Gazala, and uh, a few weeks later we chatted about uh, uh, him handling my game product, uh, Iron Bottom Sound, which was coming in, and, and we worked out a, a very equitable arrangement. Mm -hmm. And he's like me, uh, and, and most of the people on a hobby. He has a, uh, Roger and his partner Richard both have uh, real-world jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're kind of that kind of limits what they can do in the course of a year. They try to get out three games, and we're actually bringing in a Japanese game design, uh, Red Typhoon, which I, should be. I by see May. that. Yeah, May May Red Typhoon. Um, it looks like uh, looks like some kind of Soviet winter counteroffensive. Uh, exactly correct. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's all that's all well and good, but I want to hear about your game, uh, Norway 1940. So, <clears throat> what is it like? to pick up a copy of a game that you designed 36 years ago and say, huh, I'm just going to send this off and, uh, you know, they'll reprint it. You think, oh, like, this is perfect. This is just the way I would want it. The rules look sound great. Everything's perfect. Just here you go. Is that how it goes? No. Uh, first of all, there's sections in the rules. It's like, I, I can't believe I left that out. <laughs> you know, oh, my gosh, uh, moments. No, no, no question about it. Uh, uh, 
I, I think one of the things I know is in the original game, there's not, not a really good discussion on how um, German ships enter Norwegian ports. <laughs> yeah, that's not important, though, right? Yeah. It is kind of important. So, <laughs> um, and, and, but so most of the changes have been, um, uh, how should I put it, um, improving the. Uh, uh, Rules, which means basically making them longer because uh, I'm adding and, and making things more clear. Because after 36 years of, of doing this in and out, and plus you know writing books, mm-hmm. that uh, I've gotten to a point where uh, I'm not the same person I was in 1981. Right. And there, so if, if for bad or good there as well. But um, I've made changes to it to make the rules clearer. I've added in about 10 new uh, optional rules and uh, a layering on it. So, for example, uh, in doing the chapter in Hitler Strikes North, which is going to be the name of this game, mm. and, and the, as the same as the book, mm-hmm. the um, Danish could have possibly intervened. Very unlikely, but they mm-hmm. possibly could have. So we've added in a small Danish squadron at the tip of Denmark on the map. Uh, and, and a Danish port from which they can operate from. Uh, Alborg, the Danish airfield, which was a very minor airport in the original game, is now a very major airport since I now have a better understanding of uh, what it was like. Hmm. Um, Norwegian submarines. Uh, I kind of was thinking they were somewhat generic in the original game. Well, now I understand exactly what the ships were like and what their deficiencies were. How did you get that understanding? What was the what was your research that uh, that led you to that? Oh, uh, it, from my book, the Hitler Strikes North. Right, from, but, uh, but but what's what's the sources that you had that that uh, that you that you got that from? Numerous. The bibliography is uh, is, is extremely lengthy, including. Okay. Uh, my um, uh, Alessandro works in German. We both worked a little bit in Norwegian. Hmm. Uh, and of course, English is uh, uh, easy. Uh, Gear Har's book, two volumes on the invasion of Norway, appeared before ours, so we got to. And Gear and I had uh, worked together, hmm. uh, cooperated together, so that was helpful. Hmm. Uh, visited for uh, Denmark and Norway for a three-week trip. Got a tour of Oscar Borg Fortress from the curator. Um, you know, went to Bergen, uh, Oslo itself, uh, Trondheim. Um, it just okay. You're off the hook. You, you, you I, I'm convinced. You, you did the, you, you did the legwork. That's fine. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. Um, so, so you have, so you, you have the game now. I, I have to say, I'm going to sort of take this, uh, jump ahead a little bit. Your, your um, reprint of Iron Bottom Sound. I, I went and pulled out. I have the original Iron Bottom Sound. Um, mm-hmm. That I bought, you know, gosh, way back when I was, uh, I think, in high school, and um, and boy, that uh, that seemed just fine then. But now it's, you know, obviously the 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 um, graphic uh, component quality has just gone so much. It's, it's just improved so much. Uh, technology has done it. Is the is is Norway nineteen forty going to look similar? Yes, the, the, there's there's going to be uh, much improvements. Um, uh, just I'm looking right now at the the uh, a blown up copy of the uh, old gunnery table because I'm using it to make corrections and, and changes on it, and the um, parts of it are, are simply hard to read. You had black lettering on dark red. Well, um, graphically, I've come a long ways from that, and we had some uh, striping that went down for uh, show columns. Uh, it's 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 well to be blunt, it's ugly. 
So that's that's something where we're going to change. Um, we had a whole issue with the, the swastika in the original Norway. We well today, and I believe I completely uh, support it. You can't really have swastikas on game components, not and that's not because you want to sell in Germany or Austria, which will, forbids those uh, symbols on game counters. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just more for. Um, because I'm going to sell two, three copies of Norway 19, or the new one, uh, Hitler Strikes North to Germans, and certainly none of the Austrians I can think of. Um, you just don't want that symbol uh, present. And so we, we have to change that. And it was ironic that uh, one of the best-looking game counters is in the old game were the paratroop counters that Roger McGowan did the artwork for. Uh-huh, yeah. And... Uh, it's a it's a, a eagle coming down in a dive with gold background. Well, that's all good, but in the talons of the uh, eagle is a swastika. Uh-huh. So we had a debate on uh, the wargaming page of uh, Facebook, and basically that looks like it's going to become a iron cross. Okay. So um, th- that's just some of the changes that we're talking about graphically. So there's uh, a couple minor changes to the map. Um, uh, in the old days, we used overlays. Of course, now today, everything's done in Illustrator. Uh, the overlays that Dana did, we lost a couple of the hexes in, in the Fjord hexes in the American version back in 1981. Well, that's not going to be an issue this time. So <clears throat> tell me more about um, about the, the process of, um, you know, sort of – updating the game do you feel how do you feel the game mechanics are in the uh in the current day i mean hasn't there been a lot of sort of um evolution and maybe uh, streamlining and and uh improvement in the actual mechanics of games or do you think that a game from 1981 still holds up pretty well well yes and no um first of all uh it's going to remain a double blind game which okay. means you have two identical maps. Uh, reminds, in fact, when John Southert and I were playing it a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were both laughing at each other that it reminded us both of Battleship and also of uh, Stratego. Uh, in the case of Stratego, it's the hidden blocks. Okay. That, uh, that's concerning. Right. And I suspect if, if, if I were to redo Bismarck, for example, because there's so few German ships in it, I could do a one-map version of that game, uh, and ideally, uh, Norway 1940 should be played as a computer game. I mean, that would be the ideal way of doing it. But having said that, it's, okay. a, it's basically it's it's a souped-up war at sea, and it ha- or uh, 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 war what was a victory in the Pacific from uh, Avalon Hill. Both of these yes. roughly the same system, mm-hmm. um, and this is kind of a, a simple souped-up game. Um, it's playable in a couple of hours, you know, unless you get a really complex invasion of Norway going on, um, because a lot of the, uh, for example, we changed the uh, uh, victory condition somewhat. We're going to a, a two dice, a two through twelve possibilities versus a one die, one through six possibilities. Uh, so there's still about a third of a chance that you're going to be required to invade Norway, but two-thirds of the victory conditions are exiting German raiders into the Atlantic. Well, heck, that that might take 45 minutes or an hour to play. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, I got my German ships clobbered real early in the playtest version of it just uh, two weeks ago with John. So uh, to me, that's an advantage. Games that take... Uh, 
you know, an entire day or an entire weekend have their limits. Yeah. Well, the um, the other thing that I that I wonder about uh, is is how um, how you see design. Like, I mean, do you do you see design the same way that you saw it when when you were when you were making Norway nineteen forty thirty something years ago? No, no, not at all. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, graphics remain uh, vital. Um, they, they have to be good. And the the map that we did and the game counters we did were excellent in the original. They're going to be excellent in this one. And I, I'm uh, corner deck games, and my thinking has always been what, a reflection of what I refer to as West Coast graphics. And that was the old Dana Lombardi, Roger McGowan, uh, early 70s approach. You can pull out a copy of Jerusalem from Simulations Design Corp from 1972 or three that John Hill, John Hill's did. game. Yeah. I have the Mayfair yeah. reprint of that. Well, the, the Mayfair reprint is a shadow of the of, uh, uh, graphic quality of what Dana did in the original version. Okay. And I mean, it, it looks like something you, that was done today. Um, and I think you can say ditto to uh, the game counters that uh, Roger did for Norway, 1940 and for the, um, a uh, map that Dana did. And, and just as an aside, the title of the new game is going to be Hitler Strikes North, colon, the 1940 Nazi invasion of Norway. Okay. That's awfully specific. Well, and here's why. And Dana actually suggested it to me, and I thought about it, and both the Japanese and I agreed. Right now, if you think about it, 1940, uh, there's a, I mean, I have I wasn't born in 1940. I was born after, mm-hmm. let alone remembering anything from that period. And Dana made the point to me, he goes, Jack, a lot of these gamers out there who are in the hobby, who are in their 40s or their 50s, they don't really know that much history about whole entire parts of the uh, World War II conflict. And he said, you should have 1940 in the title. And I thought about it and I said, you know what, you're right. So um, hence we we stuck the 1940 somewhat up front so that it would uh, help uh, potential buyers you know think of you know what what it was what, what it was about. Wow. So you so that's that's a uh, that's an educational title is what you're telling me. Exactly correct. Yeah. There's that aspect to it. Now you you asked me about. Uh, how game design has changed. I mm-hmm. think the the three cardinal principles in my brain right now mm-hmm. are uh, large counters. Uh, I, and, and I'm I'm pleased to see that there's uh, uh, a game coming from um, one of the game companies shortly that's going to uh, go from five eighths counters to uh, three quarter inch counters. Mm. Uh, my Bear Flag Republic is an inch counters and and, and possibly even larger. Wow. Depending- it gets uh, 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 published, mm-hmm. and, and that's for uh, ease of play because our fingers are getting arthritic and old, okay. <laughs> and our eyesight's getting poor. Uh-huh. The, we, I, we were looking at the Japanese game counters from that Hobby Japan did back in 1982 mm-hmm. to reprint at Norway 1940. They're almost impossible to read. Yeah, they're half-inch counters. It's yeah. it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, then I I like a large map. Uh, per, uh, personally, uh, and I like a large map so that you can uh, get a little sense of being like a, a general working on a board. Mm-hmm. But there again, you have to be careful. You can't have a four or five or six maps because our backs are getting too old to lean over them, and that's that's just a physical fact. Yeah. And then finally, I like a relatively 
a short and concise rule book. Uh, yeah, and a, th- a fellow uh, um, uh, who uh, has c- command post games uh, just played Iron Bottom Sound, and he said uh, uh, Iron Bottom Sound Three. He made the comment that uh, he was pleased that it was a quick, easy rule book, mm-hmm. so you could get into the game straight away. And I yeah. think that's important as well. Yeah, I think that's important. Uh, I think that we we overestimate uh, the uh, the old guys overestimate how comfortable we are with rules and if we want to get people who don't have arthritic backs and and failing eyesight into the hobby we need to get them into the games as fast as possible so i i, I applaud you on that that part yeah. jack uh, i'm i'm going to leave it there because okay. um this is how just our short time frame for wild weasel but i am going to have you back and so i can tell the listeners that uh, there will be a much longer jack green interview when which we will talk about all of the uh all of the hobbies naval games um I understand that maybe Harold Buchanan doesn't like naval games, so we're going to uh, we're going to we're going to tie him to a chair and make him listen to Jack talk about uh, Bismarck <laughs> and uh, things like that. So, uh, Jack, thanks for coming on the show, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. I got a copy of B seventeen Flying Fortress Leader in the mail from Dan Versen Games the other day. Thanks very much, Dan. And I have it set up on the table. Uh, but to get to that point, I had to read some pretty bad rules. Now, one thing I've noticed about the golden age of wargaming that we're in right now, frankly, is that while component quality has gone up dramatically across the board uh, compared to the old days, and gameplay has, I think, really shown market innovation as well. I think there's so many games out now that uh, really prove that point. The rules are still very much uh, hit or miss. Um, I think rules writing has undergone a bit of an evolution, Um, maybe a divergence if you want to call it that, Um, because when I was getting into wargaming, you know, maybe 40 years ago, rules were like, you know, I don't know, these these tomes of knowledge, you know, they they codified all the elements of a game. You know what I mean? There's the movement section, there's combat, there's victory conditions and stuff like that. And they were really a catalog of systems and how those systems interacted. Um, some had cross-referencing. That was always nice, but uh, most didn't. But the expectation was that you could go to the section where a certain system was explained and, you know, answer most of the questions about that particular system. Um, and I think that makes sense. You know, at a time when there were only so many games coming out in a year um, and only a subset of those were any good, uh, you know, you could afford to take time to sit down and kind of absorb a game. Uh, I really enjoyed that, uh, frankly. Um Plus, you probably didn't have many opponents to play against, so you could take your time knowing that well, you're probably going to end up playing it against yourself. So uh, you should figure out, well, how, how are you going to do that? You know, it's not a solitaire game. Uh, how are you going to compensate for the fact that you don't have an, an opponent? So um, you had time to do that, maybe set it, set it up, and you fiddle with the counters and the map while you learned it. And anyway, so there was no rush. Um, well, now there seems to be a rush. Um, part of that, I think, is because so many games are coming out uh, and we want to be in on the new hot game uh, before the next new hot game shows up. Um, Part of it is that we have more opponents, so we want to be able to get a game on Friday and play it at the game store with our buddies on Saturday. Um, And and part of that is with solitaire gaming so established, there doesn't feel like there should be any obstacle to playing a solitaire game as soon as it comes out of the box. You know, just, I mean, it's here, it's I'm going to play it against myself, so why can't I just set it up and do it? Um, 
which is why so many rule books now feel like computer game manuals. You know, put this here, then choose this or this, then press this button. Um, they're essentially procedural guides. And that really bugs me because you can't look up stuff in a procedural guide. You just have to follow it through to the end and hope that your questions eventually get answered. Um, and this might work in a Euro game, you know, where the procedural guide is all of eight pages. But keeping questions in my head for 48 pages and then having new ones come up all the time, it's, it's not the best way for me to learn a game. And it also highlights, I think, something that I've mentioned on the podcast before, but which I find coming up over and over again for me. And that's the question of game depth and longevity. And to illustrate that, um, I got a chance to play Mark Herman's Pericles last week. Um, this is one I've been impatient to get to the table, um, but falls into that category of game where you really need everyone to be committed to the point where they'll at least read the rules once. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a slog. Um, we had excellent buy-in with uh, just one person. He didn't have a chance to go through the rules, but with the three of us, uh, the rest of us at least uh, conversant with the game, although none of us had actually played it, but we had read the rules and felt like we at least had a basic understanding, we were able to do one hour of teaching, um, and then we had three hours of gameplay. Uh, which got us through the two-turn uh, Arcadamian War scenario. And I can honestly say I really enjoyed myself, and it seems like everyone else did uh, also because, well, we made a date for a second game in a couple weeks when our schedules coincide again. So uh, if we had a bad time, we wouldn't be trying it uh, again. Um, but I don't know if the game works. Uh, the systems are neat, and I love the presentation. Uh, but does it hold up? You know, I really don't know. And I'm glad I don't know, because I'm looking forward to playing this game again and again and examining the systems, absorbing the strategies, and seeing whether this really stands up as a worthy Peloponnesian war game, uh, which is a desire I'm not sure a lot of people share, um, you know, which is fine. I'm just pointing out my preference. Um, I think people are somehow, they, they, they feel like they want to get a lot out of the game the first time so they can play another game the next time. Um, that's a different way of thinking about things, but I do think these changes in expectations have led to some differences in rules development. Um, I'm not saying all rules are like this. You know, I've been reading the rules for the new edition of Silver Bayonet, for example, and while they're involved, they do feel encyclopedic. It feels like uh, they sat down and really were intent on explaining every part of the game to you. Um, I also played The Lamps Are Going Out last week. Um, more about that at some other point. And those rules read quickly, read quickly and easily, um, just like the gameplay, which is quickly and easily. So there isn't a, cat a catastrophe happening. Um, and writing good rules is really hard and often underappreciated. So um, let me just tell you, if you're out there writing rules and you write some good ones, you'll be appreciated by at least one of us out here. Oh, and the designer of B-17 Flying Fortress Leader did put out a new set of rules on BoardGameGeek. Uh, they're not completely rewritten the way I'd like, but they are at least numbered, somewhat cross-referenced, and have clarifications included for some of the questions that came up uh, regarding the first set of rules. So that's a nice move there, and thanks. And that's it for this time. Next time, we'll talk about some games I've played in the past few days. Uh, had a hint there before. And, but I haven't had a chance to articulate my views on those yet, so uh, we'll get to those next time. So until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more Wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel, number 10.